GM friends, and welcome to the future of gaming. You're listening to our weekly blockchain gaming roll-up, and we should probably change the name. What do you guys think of Fogcast? Is that oh. good? Should we find something new? Maybe we, we can let, like, yeah. let the community vote. Anyway, we, yeah. we need to get rid of the name because due to high demands, we decided to focus less on news and more on topics that interest us. So, you know, that's what we're getting from now on. So we, we are truly recording. in the future of gaming, not the present of gaming, right? Mm -hmm. It's true. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, yeah, 100%. So maybe it's, it's irrelevant, right? But we are recording this where I am on the 30th of September. I don't know if this is relevant anymore because we're not doing the news. Anyway, we have Philip Collins. We have Devin Becker. We have myself, Nico Vreke. Today, we are talking about um, other stuff for a bunch of things than, than blockchain. So future of gaming, it's not only Web3, it's also AI and BCI. And if you don't know what BCI means, I'll explain it in a bit. We're talking about Neil Stephenson's Lambda 1, talking about Stadia, cloud gaming, distribution in Web3 games, um, and then we'll see if we have more time for more topics, uh, but that's the most important thing. So last week, I'm sure you had a hard, hard time, a hard week, because we weren't there for you. We didn't record an episode, and I've heard many distressed call-outs in the Discord of what's happening, guys. But we had some content, you know? We had some a blog post, expertly written, so appreciate all of the people that helped out with that, uh, but we're back. And so the reason we weren't there was I was away. I was in New York. We had we held our Bitcraft Summit, which is like a yearly summit where we invite a bunch of friends, a bunch of portfolio companies, and a bunch of our LPs to one place, which was Chelsea, New York. Um, and we had a little summit. And so, man, that was, it was a good summit. I was not intimately involved with all the, of the organization. Some people of my team were, and holy shit, they did a good job. And then, holy shit, is there some cool stuff being built? So two things that stood out to me. So one is the three of us, or maybe two of us, I feel maybe less, but like we're focused on this whole blockchain thing and what it could do for games. And so for us, you know, in our minds, we're living in a world where, you know, blockchain is the most important new technological shift around games. And then I'm at that summit and I see panels of people using AI in games. And I'm like, holy crap, like blockchain is nothing, right? What these dudes are doing is just, is absolutely going to change everything. Um, and so that's one thing I'd like to touch upon. And then the second thing is maybe even more important, but, you know, we're going towards the matrix, guys. It's happening. So BCI, brain computer interface. It's basically a thing that you put on your head and that can read some of your emotions. And the implications of that shit is just crazy. All right, so AI. Um, uh, Bitcraft, we invested in a company called Inworld AI. And so they're working on AI um, NPCs, which essentially means that um, I think on a, on a very like high level or a, a, like at the surface level, this, for example, means that if you're building a game and you have like a drastic in-game event, you don't necessarily, you can have NPCs change the way they react. So, like for example, you live in a big world, and there's suddenly a nuke in this world, right? Traditionally, you would have to have all of the voice lines and all of the communications of every NPC already pre-written for like this new world that they suddenly live in, right? They need to react to what happens in the world that affects everyone. Um, but so the company, the, so the tech that this company is building um, is, you know, will like 
allow these NPCs to uh, react to that, which I think will help, um, like specifically massive like MMOs, um, help with their like NPC crowd of of of, of um of characters and allow them to like you know do more events and do more cool shit within their game world. Um, I can go on, but I'll, I'll let you guys share your thoughts and experiences around that. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the coolest things about the the AI integration with NPCs is just how open-ended I think a lot of these MMOs, to your point, can get. I think, you know, in, in the past, we've seen sometimes you talk to an NPC, you have three or four options of, of what you can, can say to them or the quest that they can give you. If you can couple the power of artificially intelligent NPCs with you know, procedural generation, you can make some really cool storylines that are virtually infinite um, and basically just like never ending core loops within these incredible looking worlds that we've come to know over the last decade. And so there's definitely a lot of cool stuff there. Um, and I think that's kind of how I bucket AI in terms of what we see in, in deal flow a lot is, you know, intelligent NPCs and then, you know, artificially intelligent art generation platforms. And so I think those two coupled together is coming is going to be able to create some really cool experiences over the next the next 10 years. I mean, technically, we've always had AI in NPCs, right? But it's just this is more mm -hmm. like uh, dynamic, right? And less like scripted states, things like that. And like normally I would doubt like a lot of this stuff, but I think the the AI art stuff has convinced me that there's like a lot more potential for like things to actually expand beyond just really simple if then kind of kind of logic or expert systems or a lot of the like the because a lot of the ai hadn't advanced too much since the 80s and then mostly we'd been moving towards what was more like statistical models essentially but lately the the creative stuff in terms of being able to like blend patterns of things and create artificial people and artificial art is is starting to make me think there's a lot of possibility especially with even like the gpt3 stuff for for like AI dungeon and stuff like that. That being said, uh, for people like me that enjoy griefing and breaking systems, this is going to be a whole lot of fun, I think, in MMOs. As if you remember like what happened with uh, the Microsoft's chatbot on Twitter, where they had to shut it down because it like started, people started turning into like a Nazi. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I can only imagine that it's going to be a thing, right? Like you already have um, open AI constantly being overly vigilant about censorship of how the how their tools being used. This is going to be a similar kind of situation. Now, I don't know what kind of parameters they're setting on it, but I can only imagine like in a full multiplayer world, similar to what, you know, what happened with Twitter, people are going to abuse the system. If a system can learn, then it, I mean, any of you seen Chappie, you see what happens like when you got, you know, gangster rappers teaching a short circuit robot how to how to live, right? And and so you're going to have similar potential where if it responds dynamically, that means it's also essentially taking user input to drive what it does in a way that is not necessarily pre-planned, which will be amazing if, if that actually works out, but also really unpredictable, which I think is, is not scary, uh, but is certainly going to be potential for news stories coming out of games uh, that, are, that are very unpredictable. Devin, you're such a downer, man. No, I, I'm excited um, about it. I, it's a downer for everyone else who doesn't <laughs> enjoy the griefing. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Dude, so first of all, Chappie, amazing movie. Highly recommended. Second, I remember when I was in high school, we had this game, which was um, basically you go on Wikipedia, you click, give me a random page, and then you try to get to Hitler in as, as few clicks as possible. Mm. The new game is going to be um, how fast can you turn an AI into Hitler? 
So that's that's the the new game that that, that we're yeah. gonna have. Convince them that um, all the people that are playing are are you know disposable, and the, and the NPC needs to take over. And oh boy, yeah, it could get fun. Yeah, all, all no, these uh, uh, these moderation and anti toxicity platforms are gonna really like the uh, the, in, well, the introduction of AI gonna try and NPCs. Generate, they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna have AI moderators moderating the AI. And so it's going to yeah, be like a yeah. war between like the the, the Nazi esque fascist uh, you know moderator AI versus the the other one that's trying to act yeah. like Nazis. I mean, it definitely does show you how all of these different things that might seem very separate on the surface, like technology and gaming and outside of gaming, stacks so cleanly. And it's interesting seeing all of these different things come together. And you know, they're not they're not independent. They're they're really collaborative tools that you know, interact in, in interesting ways. So I don't know, I'll be, I'll be curious to see how a lot of these games can handle such open-ended structures in a lot of ways, where if you have smart NPCs that can kind of guide you in different directions or maybe change the quest lines in ways that aren't as, you know, kind of railed as they are in, in modern games today, um, it, there's going to be a, a cool balance of it being a very open-ended with it being at least a little bit structured to avoid it just being an infinite and sometimes misleading experience. I feel mm -hmm. like it, w it well suits something like Skyrim, which you're used to being like, it's kind of janky, like quality's kind of all over the place, buggy, but also like open-ended and you can kind of explore and do things that you wouldn't expect. And I think that kind of environment where it's like sandboxy-ish, but with like some story and some, some content, uh, that mm. I think would be totally ideal. Um, I mean, I don't know what Bethesda is doing because now they've been basically absorbed by Microsoft. But I think that that would be a, a perfect uh, like mm -hmm. game genre to experiment with this in. You have some of these super random Skyrim mods, Skyrim mods, where you can turn the dragons into like trains. Dude, I can't wait for an NPC come to me like, "Holy crap! Did you see that train fly through the air?" <laughs> yeah. um, You're like, "Did yeah. a player get into my game?" <laughs> my um. One other thing that, so the way, so we had a few panels about, about around AI in games and the way they framed it, which I found interesting was um, they see AI as a assistance tool for people to lo essentially lower the barrier of creation, which, you know, happens within games, but also in art, right? Where, you know, you have a lot of artists who are like, um, yeah, you know, all of this stable diffusion mid-journey stuff. It's not real art, right? Um, but you know the, the way they describe it is, you know, if you can just quickly implement uh, an so you you build a world or like for example, me, I'm I have some good ideas, but I'm not very creative, right? And so you know all of the 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 areas where I would not be creative, I could help make use of artificial intelligence to you know create a new world, right? Where they fill in the gaps uh, where my um, creativeness lacks um and so that's that's the way they were mostly framing it and i, I found it interesting um and mm -hmm. and so yeah you know after seeing some of the because they they actually did demos and so they had a conversation with one of the ais which you know it took questions from the audience and so we didn't turn it into hitler but we did ask the bots which was a she um you know about ip and um, and, and that kind of stuff and, and AI and then it was really funny because she gave like a good explanation and then at the end but in the end uh, we're gonna have to or it, this is gonna have to be decided by the courts which was like a kind of you know mic drop moments and everyone was like holy crap <laughs> this is this is this is real so um, yeah that was impressive and exciting it feels and like then, an evolution of procedural generation in that sense 
um, of like, you know, you take like Minecraft, right? The way, the way Minecraft generated its levels using procedural systems with like a seed and the way that mm-hmm. people are doing art off of like the prompts they put in. It, it feels like we're like saying like, okay, we had procedural generation systems that were very algorithm based. Now we're using like systems that are, that are closer to like general intelligence systems to be that procedure now. Uh, and they're, but they're still trained. Like so, rather than writing an algorithm from scratch, you're training an algorithm using input data, and then having that be the procedural generation. So like if you if you look at it in that way, like we've been heading this direction for quite some time in games. And like going back to even like the early days of like uh, the the games that led up to Skyrim, like the older Elder Scrolls games, like they kind of had that feel of like being this huge world where everything was almost like semi procedurally generated and like kind of you know, some variable set of like Lego blocks everywhere, but it does feel like we've, we've been progressing this direction for quite a while. And that this is kind of mm-hmm. inevitable, I think in a way. And I think level generation, like, like world content generation, just based off of what we've seen in art, I think will be like really good uh, for this. I mean, you may get some really surreal uh, landscapes and stuff like that, but I think you could get some really cool procedurally generated, essentially uh, worlds that may, may not be always consistent, but should be interesting and hopefully surprising uh, most of the time. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a few decades, maybe less, we'll be able to say, I want to have a Skyrim-style world, um, battle royale game with, you know, Halo-type guns, um, one, like uh, 100 players, and the AI will, will generate everything for you mm. um, just from that prompt, similar to what we have with, with the art today. Crazy. And it, it'll be... It'll be- Maybe a, a slightly sad day in the fact that I think we can appreciate all of the work and effort that goes into what it takes to make amazing games today. Mm. And I think that aspect might start to fade in certain ways. And, you know, I'm not saying that games will be made entirely by computers in the future, but I think we'll maybe lose the ability to have that appreciation. And maybe the appreciation falls on the engineers that are building these algorithms that make it possible. Um, but you're almost yeah. two layers removed. Um, but at the same time, it's also incredibly functional. It helps you build better games faster. And so I think that appreciation and the sentiment that I'm talking about there is going to be overshadowed by faster development cycles. Mm-hmm. People can fo- people can push out product quicker and people can push out, you know, product that has focus, you know, elsewhere outside of design. Maybe they're spending more time on, you know, thinking about game mechanics and implementing them in a, in a more unique way. So mm-hmm. while there might be a little bit of a sad day in terms of a, appreciation of all the effort that goes into design, in, in certain cases, I think it'll be offset or more than offset by by other factors that we as consumers are are pounding the table for. Right. Mm-hmm. We might might just be appreciating the craftsmen that are that are designing the data set for it or setting parameters right. or like do it like crafting the AI itself. Like so we have all these like fragmented smaller AIs that are like um boutique AIs for different things that people have like curated and put together and stuff. And then we that's like its own craftsmanship and I'm sure we'll move on to other things, as you said. Like it, we won't run out of things to appreciate. It'll, we'll just shift mm-hmm. what we're what being interested in. Yep. This relates um, very smoothly to the next technology that was discussed a bit on our summit, which was BCI or Brain Con- Computer Interface. Um, essentially, there's two types of BCI. There is invasive and non-invasive BCI. So invasive is where there's literally like there's an, a surgery and there's something implanted into your brain or close to your brain. Um, and then the non-invasive one is, is literally like a helmet that you put on and that it has sensors and it can, can feel stuff. Um, and so, you know, this technology is, is like, it's evolving super fast. And so you have people right now that are um, paraplegic, you know, that 
can barely move, but that are able to use these types of technologies. I think even non-invasive ones to like move robot arms, stuff like that, um, which is fascinating. And then, you know, one of the questions was, okay, how does this relate to games? And so um, I initially, like, <laughs> I had always imagined that, you know, in, 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 40 years from now, I'll plug a USB stick in the back of my head and I'll play, like, I'll be teleported inside Skyrim, right? And I'll be, you know, in, like, in the characters, I don't know how, how to describe, you know what I mean. Anyway, so, um, but on a sh shorter term, um, the way they were describing it is not necessarily as you think the input, but, um, you know, the game actually uses outputs and some of your emotions. So essentially what it means is you put this helmet on, you're playing a game, and the game or like the, the BCI actually registers what kind of events trigger what kind of emotions in your brain, which means that, you know, if you want to play a scary game and you're an arachnophobe, so you're very scared of spiders, they're going to show a spider and, you know, they're going to notice that, holy crap, this guy, he doesn't like a spider. So we're going to put mm. more spiders in there. And so essentially the game will actually like adopt or adapt to you know, the things that you either like or dislike or in whatever, like, context you want, um, which becomes fascinating because then if I combine that with what we just talked about where, you know, game creation itself becomes um, AI-driven, that's essentially, like, you know, one of the future jobs is going to be you're going to almost be a lab rat where, you know, you, mm -hmm. they put you in a chair, they they put a helmet on your head and you're going to play games and you don't have to do or say anything because they're just going to register what's fun and what's not fun um, and yeah. maybe like that's how game development will happen at some point or it'll maybe fine-tuning faster that's for sure exactly. yeah. and it'll make it more objective as well where it's like if we can just mm -hmm. read the signals of your brain rather than asking you for your feedback 30 minutes after playing when you're maybe like you know less clear on on your thinking at the time in the moment there's a lot of really cool things in terms of play testing and how you can leverage that to build better products for these dev teams so i think that's probably one of the cooler use cases i've seen as well nico there's some ridiculously smart people working on these applications and it's uh it's really cool i am i am curious to see how how that, that plays out on the input side as well like what types of games mm -hmm. that could be interesting for where your brain is literally the controller so i've um, actually done but, that um yeah. i did some i did a, a game jam for NeuroSky, um which was like the the eeg kind of one uh and it was pretty interesting like it, you, you definitely realize like those those kinds of devices like can be pretty inaccurate uh mm -hmm. at first like you know without training and calibration on individuals um, obviously mm -hmm. that's gotten better, right? And we have like AI tools to like calibrate stuff faster and smarter and stuff. But you do realize like there's there's a certain looseness to it as as there is with any kind of sensor. Anyone who like played early Connect games uh, or like any kind of thing that's like a sensor of the body or other things like that, there's like this this period where it's like really kind of loosey goosey. And uh, it, it was interesting to try and develop for because you you only had like certain kinds of vague inputs where like is someone focusing and concentrating or are they like stressed or like you have very like simple ideas of stuff and it and it reminds me of like the the idea of where we have different like brainwave patterns it's like oh, I'm in gamma or delta or whatever and it's like this these vague ideas of like what that means same with the idea of like emotions being kind of this this chemical soup in your body where like there's, I think it'll be a while before we get accuracy there, but it was interesting to try and develop games around this. So I had a game where you were like actually boxing. So uh, you, if you were focused, it would like bring like build up power, and if you were relaxed, it like would increase your defense, and then you would like actually blink to like punch. And it was like very simple, but you didn't have it was totally hands free, which was kind of mm -hmm. fun, you know, it just very simple system. But the the cool thing about these sorts of things is not necessarily like 
just a like binary kind of inputs or like simple gradient inputs. It's the biofeedback stuff. So like the stuff that Nico's bringing up about, uh, you know, it learning from your inputs in response to stuff. There's there's so much we can do with biofeedback devices where uh, we're able to like enhance learning or change people's like emotional states and things like that really quickly. So like we combine that AI stuff, right? We're talking about AI NPCs and they can learn that you react certain ways to certain things. AI NPCs can suddenly become very manipulative. Like obviously you could design them to be that way, but it could be really interesting when uh, you combine those two things with with the AI and the ab ability for the AI to read your mind, essentially. Now, obviously, that can go down a very dystopian or negative path very quickly. But content-wise, that could be really interesting. I mean, imagine, you know, like those Japanese dating sim games when suddenly, like, it can actually tell how you're reacting. Uh, and you combine that with, like, speech-to-text and, like, text-to-speech. And, like, suddenly you're just talking with it. And, like, it's it's reading your your emotions and stuff rather than just your face. and but then we have like biofeedback calibration stuff. So it can like look at your face, you know, like uh, all the facial tracking stuff they're trying to put in, for example, uh, in theory in the Quest Pro and stuff like that, where they're trying to actually track your facial stuff. So then it's like suddenly reading your mind, looking at your face, so your body language. And it's, it's it gets pretty crazy, I think, pretty fast. As, as Nico's mm -hmm. pointing out, like this stuff accelerates really quickly as soon as we start getting like a good foothold in something that's kind of working. And like, like I said, it could, it could get pretty dystopian in a way, depending on, like, just imagine the power of using it for advertising, right? Like we had stuff where we had like eye tracking heat maps and stuff before to like try mm. and figure out how people are looking at things when they're looking at them. Now, all of a sudden, if we're reading their minds, like advertising gets way more effective uh, mm -hmm. when suddenly you actually know how people are reacting to it. And you can really tell then if they're actually paying attention and uh, it, gets, it gets pretty nutty. One of the discussions I, I often have is and this is completely unrelated to gaming or kind of um is that in our modern society essentially what we're what's happening is that companies are incentivized to hack our reward systems as humans and you can see this in like food social media you know and general entertainment you know alcohol drugs porn like all of that is designed in such a way like we're not used to that being so available and so you know given like given technological advancements Companies essentially get more tools to understand better what gives us these outsides, you know, inside our head rewards. And um, so, you know, this is why uh, one of my, my books that I really liked is, is a book by uh, Harari, uh, the author of Sapiens. He has his 21 lessons for the 21st century where he puts like one of his lessons is that meditation is probably one of the most important things humans can do these days because meditations allows you to like sync with your reward systems and realize that you know everything that you feel is not necessarily like absolute truth if that makes sense and so um anyway that's another discussion uh maybe not for this podcast if, if you want to jam about this uh, i'm down it's uh, something i think about a lot cool next topic uh neil stephenson's lamina one i um you know half an hour ago read the white paper and some highlights, right? So one, the um, one of the problems that Neil Stevenson is trying to solve here. By the way, he's the author of uh, what's it called Snow Crash, mm -hmm. which was the first mentioning of the thing called the metaverse, and so he's called the what is it, the father of the metaverse or whatever. Like he coined the term, and he also described like what it would be like, what it would look like. I read Snow Crash, and I'm gonna be honest, I struggled. I found you know the ideas in it pretty good, but I found the way it was written so hard to get through. I recently read Ready Player One, and it's so much easier to read. So, you know, 
I have a, a clear favorite, but um, nevertheless, like I think that the story is great, and I think people, some people like the way it was written. So it's probably just me. Did you guys read the book? I read it a long time ago. I don't remember the writing style. I mean, I remember enjoying it, but I was very into cyberpunk kind of stuff. So mm. Mm. I do recommend uh, people that do like it, though. Diamond Age is another one of his hugely popular books that is that is still like ahead of its time in a lot of ways, I think. So that's another good recommendation. I think if you I think it's a different style of writing, too. So if you didn't like Snow Crash, you might enjoy that more. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I haven't yet, which I need to prioritize given the, the field Shame. that we work and live in. So now I, I talk to metaverse Devin every, every week. I got to get in touch with, with his, with his knowledge. Yeah, exactly. Read the cliff notes. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, one of the, the first quotes in a white paper is that the, one of the problems today is that there's an, and I'm quoting inexorable economic forces drive investors to pay artists as little as possible while steering their creative output in the direction, in the directions that involve the least financial risk. So essentially, like, it's all of the problems that Web2 has mm -hmm. and all of the centralization of these huge, huge platforms. Which, um, which I think is kind of funny, though, because, like, I, was, well, I, read that, I read that when I was going through the white paper as well. And I was thinking that it's almost a, a two-sided problem, right, where the investors have expectations. People create things that are in line with investor expectations to get funding to build out their visions. And so we've kind of seen this in, in like Web3 gaming, which is a little bit ironic from that statement where everyone's kind of huddled around a few different genres or a few different themes and approaches to building out Web3 games because they know that's where the money is. That's where they're able to get funding. That's what they're able to build out. So it's kind of come full circle or even on the Web3 side, you're still just chasing capital from centralized sources today at least. But, but look sorry, at art sorry, in general, Nico. like patronages and stuff like that, the way art has always worked is involves some sort of weird commercialization or patronage system or stuff like that. I don't think that's, it's not a new problem and I don't think it's it's a problem that's going to be like solved by some technological uh, or economic uh, or financial technology that that's going to, I mean, you might shift it, but I don't think you solve it because I think there's too many different forces at play uh, in terms of like, if, if if you assume survival and and other things are still a factor for humans that are like pressures that make it so that there is an influence from commercial interests or mm -hmm. royalty interests or whoever it might be that people that have the ability to give you something in return for your art is almost always going to influence art. And you're going to have to kind of have this divide where you're like halfway between worlds. It reminds me of like um, game developers that often like start by being contractors first and then work their way up into enough resources to be able to make their own things. Um, like we, it's just going to be a, a thing where, especially craft kind of stuff, where you, where you have some sort of craft to what you do, uh, to the, or skill to the art, like you need to develop it as well. And I think I, it's great to try and build cool new ways to disrupt that and, and shift it. But like the whole history of, I think, uh, creativity and money is, is kind of fraught with those being interwoven. Don't you think that, what you just described is being solved by this concept of like 10,000 true fans. Where traditionally, because distribution, which is a topic we might get to later, is was such an issue, right? And it's especially direct attribution of value from the consumer to the, the producer of, of any type of, of creative output. Um, and that, you know, through, I think, Web3 technologies, we can have, like, you can, if, if, you know, if you have 10,000 true fans that are willing to pay you um, $1 a month, you can live of that as a creator, right? And I think, you know, this is something we've 
started started seeing through like YouTube and Twitch and and and, and other of these platforms. Um, but there's still these intermediaries there. I I don't know like YouTube. What do they pay? Is it probably less than half, right? Um, that they pay out to their creators. And so I th it feels to me like that what what he's trying to solve here, or at least like he puts on paper that he's starting to solve, is just this this the fact that these platforms are so powerful that mm -hmm. they can tax just so much. Yeah, that's a fair point. I don't know. That's, uh, I, you know, I think this is one of the core theses behind Web3. Um, it's mm -hmm. just like this this whole disintermediation thing. And, you know, because we I, now we've have heard that a way from the internet in general, like Napster is going to disrupt music or like these kinds mm -hmm. of things we've heard about for a while. And I don't think they're not true, but mm -hmm. I think we've definitely like been hearing that kind of variations on that theme ever since the internet started where it's like, we're disrupting publishers. We're disrupting all these other things. But mm -hmm. ultimately, at some point, we shift back towards publishers because of discovery issues and, you know, distribution issues. And, the, like, at some point, like, there's, yeah, there might be plenty of fans to go around, but finding and reaching 10,000 true fans is not a trivial thing. We have the survivorship bias where we, we hear all these, these success stories and don't hear about all the people that completely failed. Uh, to reach that or to to achieve that, and I and I don't think that makes it any necessarily less achievable, but it it's it is one of those things where uh, there is still a place for publishers or other things that uh, help with that process. Like YouTube also facilitated a ton of that for people in a way that like because of their technology, because Google could go crazy on the tech and make it you know just able to to broaden out and and like be this huge platform that it is. Uh, yeah, like it's, there's, there's obviously two sides to that. And I'm not arguing mm -hmm. uh, for the, the, that corporations should be running art or anything like that at all. I'm just saying like, there's, there's considerations, um, yeah. that factor into this and you have early and late stage stuff. So it's like the app store, we had the early stage where everyone like could be a hit potentially. And then as it got deeper and deeper and everyone started just like cloning each other and it just could be, it was a war of who could market the hardest or now like to the point where it's who can buy players. I mean, we've gotten to the point where we're going from like, uh, you know, trying to, to monetize all the players to literally just trying to actually acquire them at mm -hmm. this point by paying them. Like it, it, it goes through this transitionary period. and I don't think web three is going to be immune to that. 100%. Yeah. I think, um, the way I look at the internet is the internet essentially commoditized information and inf inter information like transferring. And what Web3 is doing is I think um, it's commoditizing like value flows, something that wasn't mm. traditionally possible. And so I agree that we still have the you know dy dynamics that we see today. But I do think that, and again, like we're chipping away at that, you know, it, it has to be centralized to work. Something, uh, anyway. Yeah. Good, because we started this talking about Lambda 1 and we ended up going like super meta, super philosophical. Let's, let's get back to uh, to what our friend Neil Stevenson is building. <laughs> it is a, so Lambda 1 is a layer one blockchain. It is metaverse as a service. So we're not talking about SaaS companies now. We're talking about mass companies now. All right. That's that's the new kid on the luck. And, and that's, that's the cool thing that people should be doing. Um, it's consists of community economic participation and incentives, which I guess we just discussed. And also they're going to be producing original content, which I assume means that they're going to be building a game, which is probably going to be like an MMO, like metaverse style experience. Um, so that's what they're building. I'm curious, Phil, if Neil Stevenson comes to you and he's like, yo, Phil, I got a deal for you, man. I'm building the infrastructure for an open metaverse 
I'm going to, you know, it's going to be a layer one. You know, Web3 has to be in there, but we're also going to build our game. It's going to have Metaverse as a service. What do you think as an, as a like more infrastructure focused investor? At first, I think, oh God, this entry point is going to be brutal because Neil Stevenson's attached to it and his name's going to carry a lot of value. Um, but <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, um, it's tough because obviously there's a lot of credibility around this team and the way that they think about this space. I think I'd be a little bit skeptical around just like how much they're going after. I think we've seen this a lot where you're trying to build the infrastructure while you're trying to build the game, while you're trying to build the protocol. It's just, it's just a lot. And I mean, maybe because of that brand that they have and because of the amount of capital that they could theoretically attract, maybe they can hire a big enough team to have you know, three divisions that are doing this synchronously. But I mean, I, I think I'd, I'd get a little bit concerned doing all three at once. Obviously it's not, it's circumstantial for, for the, for the team and the resources that are available. But I mean, I think, I think that's like the flag that goes up in my mind, just because we've seen so many people doing one of those three and trying to execute on those really well. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in this, in this world, I'm not sure that you necessarily have to own all three up front. Right. I mean, obviously in the end, things merge, companies merge, technologies merge, but going out and saying, Hey, we're starting by doing everything is always a little bit, I think, intimidating from the investor side. I don't know, Nico, I'd be curious to hear how you think about that too. Yeah, very similarly. I'm, um, I'm curious, maybe we can do at the end of this segment, we can do a bet about how much they've raised, right? We know that our friend Gabe Bladen raised 200 million. Um, how much did our friend Neil Stevenson raise? Let's see. Um, but I, less, I fully agree less with you. Than 200 million, right? What? Are we, are we pegging the over under at 200 million? Cause I'm going to take the under on that one, but yeah, yeah, is right. yeah. <laughs> likely. Yeah. We, we can do a guess and I'm like, I don't know if, if it ever comes out, how much they raise. We, we can probably figure it out. Um, anyway, um, you know, to, 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 I, I want to, you know, get back to your point where whenever I see a deck where we're doing this and this and this, the more ands you add the more things that can go wrong, because things go wrong with startups a lot, right? If you're trying to do 10 things and they're all depending on, dependent on each other, as a startup, what's your success chance at mm -hmm. doing anything well? It's, it's, it's less than 50%, but let's take 50%. Like the more ands you add, the smaller the percentage of you becoming successful. Um, and so it's, you know, it's very interesting, right? Because with what they're building, so they're, they're, essentially building a layer one blockchain, which is going to be all blockchains are kind of two-sided marketplaces where you need people to actually build shit on top of there. And then mm. you need people to consume the shit that's being built on there. And so this famously has the cold start problem, which means that, mm. you know, you need shit to be built for people to come, but you need people to be there for people to be incentivized for builders to be incentivized to build shit. Right. And so that there's this famous problem and a lot of these Web3 platforms that I see realize this. And so mm -hmm. they're like, look, we're building the infrastructure, but you know what? We're also going to be building a game on top. And and it yep. seems like that's what they're doing here. Um, and so they almost have to be that ambitious. And, and it seems like uh, in this technology, one, I think um, the all of the, the projects need to be of a like enormous scope because of this, this whole cold star, star problem. And then two, it's also interesting that um, like how how uh, forefront the name Neil Stevenson here is, and it almost seems like you need someone like that, or it is a very positive point in order to get people excited about it, because 
because the technology and the and the business and the project relies so much on other people doing stuff, mm-hmm. you like the marketing is almost half of the project, right? We have seen some super strong technical teams. Um, uh, what is one example? Like there are some of these blockchains like Zilliqa, for example. Zilliqa is like a mm-hmm. blockchain no one talks about. But, yeah. but they have some like, I'm pretty sure that the technology is actually like pretty solid, but no one talks about them. So no one's building on them. So no one, so, so no one's exciting about them. So they're failing. and yeah. But they might technically be the strongest. And so it's this... You know, it's it's a dynamic I've, I'm I'm thinking about more and more, and I see more and more where I don't know how you win this. Um, like maybe one way is is attaching like the, the father of the metaverse to you yourself, or and yeah. and or building like these huge projects. Um, but it becomes it feels like harder and harder to to make a major impact without like a, a 50 million plus budget. Yeah, I mean, and in Web three, I think one of the ways people have done this is just through their wallets. And I think like Polygon, for example, has done an incredible job of this is they've used their deep pockets to attract a lot of content. And through all of that content, they've attracted a lot of attention. And through all that attention, they've attracted a lot of traditional enterprises that are considering going into Web3. And so they have an extensive list of companies that everyone has heard of. And that Polygon is like their on-ramp into Web3. And I mean, it all kind of traces back on the paper trail to the money that they've been able to deploy that attracts that attention. And so even if those games aren't good, they've attracted enough attention where they've actually created value through the content they're bringing on the platform purely on the promise of that content. So I don't know. I mean, it's hard in this in this space because it is so early that a lot of the most promising content just hasn't been fully announced or revealed yet. And so you're kind of working under the promise of a lot of things. But I mean, that that has a lot of power um, in terms of name recognition and eventually, you know, commercially. I mean, to your point, that's the like Polygon brought over, um, I forget his name off the top of my head, I feel like it was Ryan Wyatt or something like that, yep. from a head of YouTube gaming over, yep. and that's an example of a big name, right? Like, where they were like, oh, this dude helped build YouTube gaming, like, he's someone who could help build a new game-related network, and so, like, that that stuff does matter, and, like, you even kind of essentially pointed to it, Nico, when you mentioned uh, Gabriel Layden, right? Like, who would who would care about Limit Break had they not attached his name to it, right? Like, and him make his big old stink online and just be like, some random company raised $200 million and they've just got these weird waifu JPEGs. Like, what the hell is this? Like, it yeah. wouldn't have the same level of, like, uh, recognition and attention and stuff without, like, a name attached. And it's not like Neil Stevenson's new to attaching his names to stuff. He was pretty associated with Magic Leap before. And he actually was one of the advisors, if you look through, towards the end of the white paper on Shrapnel, like, uh, so dude's like attached himself to a lot of stuff. And he's also got a lot of, uh, at least knowledge in terms of like, if you look at the research he does for his books and stuff, obviously he's going back to the original, you know, term metaverse, but he's also got like a, a good crypto background. Dude wrote like three books that are like telephone book size books on cryptography related plots. Okay. And, uh, and dude's like, you know, written stuff about video games. Uh, like I'm not saying that makes him an expert, but the dude obviously does his research, knows the space very well help to create the concepts of the space and things like that. Um, and I think that's that's a big help and you attach his name to it. And then suddenly it's like, oh, well, at least someone who kind of understands this really well isn't just some random finance dude deciding to make this stuff. Uh, and also, and I read through the white paper as well. And like one thing I found kind of interesting is, uh, I mean, first off, they they are like way overscoped, I think. Uh, I don't think they hit those 2023 roadmaps like any time, like, even close to on target, but they are at least trying to do some stuff to kind of bootstrap. Like if you read the section where they're looking to kind of build off Avalanche's technology, 
um, as a way to kind of like bootstrap some of that that L1 stuff. So they're not like looking to build an L1 purely from scratch. And I think that was probably smart to say like, we're going to take some existing technology. We're going to kind of, kind of try and retrofit it uh, for, for our purposes and stuff like that. I do think though, there are a lot of things in there that they're uh, going to run into huge problems with. Like when they're talking about all the all the metaverse data stuff, like they're not really laying out how they're going to actually do that. They're just talking about the problems that, that they're going to try and help solve. And I think those problems are, are a lot deeper than they're taking for granted. Like data storage and distribution and, and distributed networks is a huge problem. Like there's a reason it's really expensive to store data on Ethereum. And no one's really got a great solution. IPFS has its own problems. Uh, they, they all have some downsides and no one's really like solved that, solved that yet. And so uh, I think, you know, maybe they find another solution like Avalanche where they just go, you know, we're going to take this tech and we're going to use that. And I'm not saying it's uh, undoable, but I do think they, they probably are biting off a bit more uh, than they can realistically chew without either like uh, bootstrapping off of other stuff or maybe even just straight up acquiring other companies with the tech and stuff like that. Cause I don't, I don't think you can just hire your way into that. You can't just be like, we'll hire another division of smart people that'll solve this. Um, it's more like uh, if someone solves it, you could buy them or you can take their technology and use it. But I think that's the only way we realistically see it. But that being said, if they just, if they focus on a vertical slice, like you're saying, Nico, where they're like, let's just, let's just take this blockchain, blockchain tech that works pretty well. Let's build our game on top of it. And let's grow out organically from there. And then use that as our use case for then building that into a broader technology, like the way Unreal became the Unreal Engine and all these sorts of things are, are like built out from like an initial use case and then expand from there. Or even Unity was built off of a game being built and then they just decided the engine was better. Um, so we may see a situation like that, right? That being said, uh, it does have that problem of like, let's get people using the platform first. I mean, look how long it took Roblox to get to the point. Uh, mm -hmm. where it was when it came to like getting enough people on it that people even cared about it as a platform. And like you see Mant Manticore being stuck in that situation right now with their like uh, Roblox alternative. So that's going to be the big thing. And that's where you need the big name attached. I think having mm -hmm. Neil Stevenson's name is like the only thing that's going to make people take a second look at it yet another metaverse. I didn't know Neil Stevenson was, you know, or had put in so much time or, or like on the technical side. Because um, I found Crichton. it hard to Sorry? You reminds me of Michael Crichton, who was like, who studied tons of science and then write stuff like Jurassic Park and stuff like based off of science. Yeah. Didn't know that. Okay. So new objective. Let's, um, let's get Neil Simpson on here and let's, yeah. uh, let's ask him what, what he's up to. Um, yeah. Fascinating. And, and it, it seems like it's going to be a while since we have, uh, until we have more information and how things turn out. Um, yeah. I, I was curious about the fact that they're building on Avalanche. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, yeah. What do you think about that, Phil? Honestly, yeah, I was, uh, that was a little bit surprising to me too. I, I don't have a ton of thoughts on it at the moment, but it, it did stick out. I feel like we had we saw a little avalanche resurgence on the gaming side. I don't know. I've lost track of time. I guess like probably late last year, where they were making a big push into getting content onboarded onto avalanche, and then it kind of mm -hmm. just went radio silent. But that might Krabata, be more of a man. macro thing than an avalanche <laughs> platform. What's that? Krabata and DeFi Krabata. Kingdoms, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, good. All right. So let's see what's our, what our buddy Neil spins up there. Um, our next topic, I, I wish I could do like sound effects with like the, the sad um, song. You know, there's like this, this, this is like this Scottish, Scottish bagpipe thing that they play um, mm -hmm. when people pass away. Anyway, it's time to talk about Stadia. 
Anyone wants to give a, a eulogy here, Devin? You're a big fan of Parenting. Yeah, I see some tears swelling up there. I see some. I see some genuine <laughs> tears coming out of Devin right now. It, honestly, like, so I'm someone who played on live back in the day. Like, I I'm a big fan of cloud gaming. I think it's it's really cool, and it's like one of those things. It's not just like convenient. It's one of those things that by kind of making the platform work differently, you can really kind of expand how people play games. And uh, and I was someone, for example, I only really recently finally upgraded my computer to the point where I could play the game that I commentated for five years. Uh, mm. And so I was playing it on Stadia as soon as it was like available on there. Like that was a big deal to me because suddenly I could play it like in a reasonable way. And I saw like it, just in the Reddit and stuff like that, so many dads who suddenly could get back into gaming again because mm. they could do it on their phone and they could do it on their TV. Mm. And uh, I think it's, I think it's really cool. But unfortunately it's from Google, and uh, I've been burned many, many times by being really into stuff that Google just takes out back and shoots. Uh, this actually lasted a lot longer than many of their other uh, graveyard projects, like Google Wave, or if anyone even remembers Google Buzz. Uh, I liked Google Plus a lot as well. There's like a lot of projects they've just straight up shot, and I think people saw this coming for a while, but I think mm -hmm. honestly, I, I'd blame Microsoft more than anyone else for basically just killing this. Like, uh, And that's only because Microsoft did a fantastic job of just taking over cloud gaming with their with just their acquisitions, the money they spent on everything, the the huge amount of like AAA releases on there. Um, they just did a fantastic job. The technology though, Google absolutely wins. If you, I mean, the people, anyone I see bashing Stadia, either had bad network issues for some reason because of their router or something else, or just didn't play it. Like if you played it and on like a decent network, you understood like this is like game changing technology. It is. There's almost no latency. And that's noticeable in any way. And it's like high quality. It's really good. It was hell. It was the best way to play a cyberpunk uh, when that first came out. Like that was the best platform to play it on, period. And uh, it, it's just fantastic technology. That being said, the upside is while Stadia is being killed as a brand, the technology will still be around. And I think I read even that Sony is potentially using it as a way to help them compete with Xbox, which if that's the case uh, is is good because they, they've tried to do their like remote gaming stuff they've done for a long time where you could like play your PlayStation stuff remotely on your uh, Vita or whatever it was and stuff like that. So like it's, it's not the end of the tech, but it absolutely was by far the best implementation of cloud gaming uh, that existed. That being said, Xbox uh, has gotten better. The cloud stuff has gotten better, but they do stupid stuff. Like if you want to play cloud uh, stuff on your computer, you've got to use an Xbox controller. And I, I originally, I did it with the Stadia controller and then they started making it. So, oh, no controller detected no. unless you used an Xbox controller. It's stuff like just, just dumb stuff like that, where I'm like, mm, this is definitely still Microsoft at the end of the day. Uh, but they, they won. Uh, Luna is, is a non-starter realistically. Um, Stadia is essentially dead. Like it's just Xbox One. That's it. <sighs> Tears yeah, in my eyes. Like the only way Luna. It feels like the only way Luna could compete is if Amazon goes out and acquires an insane library of content, and then they they try to they try to commercialize it. And even if the tech's inferior, they you know what what I, what I feel like Microsoft's done so well is the like the bundling, right? Like Xbox Game Pass Ultimate. It's included mm -hmm. and like just onboarding and getting people to trust cloud gaming. Cause there's such a, there's such a level of skepticism. Even if you haven't tried it, you've heard about input lag, latency issues. And like, unless you literally don't have a device that can run a game that you really want to play, it's kind of like, who cares, right? Like if I have a, a PC rig that can run all my games and, and that's where I, where I spend most of my gaming time, I don't really have a, a direct use case for it necessarily. But um, I think, I think Xbox is winning the 
trust and adoption game through the way that they're bundling. But I mean, yeah, you have some pretty heavy hitters with NVIDIA and potentially Amazon and Sony still in the ring. So I don't know. I, I just think it's going to be hard to overcome Microsoft's library at this point and the way that they're able to bring it to the market. I uh I played Disney 2. Like stream. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's free um, to play on there. Yeah, it's free to play. And so I tried it and it gave me a bit of a headache. So it's just it, it, and maybe it's my internet connection. It's it should be pretty fast like here in in Europe it's It's usually the router. Like, um like the router yeah. you go through is is usually what causes the problems, not so much your internet connection cuz I played it on like my phone on like you know 4G and like been just totally fine still. Really? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. It's I've played a lot of first-person shooters, and so, you know, you get really sensitive to ping issues. Um, and so, for me, it feels like, you know, I don't see myself ever, like, playing on cloud, because I can, like, for, like I've have, I have I've built my own computer, and I'll, I'll upgrade it if there's games that I can't mm -hmm. play on it anymore. Just, I don't know, maybe I'm a purist, but it, it feels to me like, you know, if I have any, there's always going to be, like, in, in any multiplayer game, there's always going to be some like latency right uh but i want that latency to be between me and other players and not between me and like my full gaming experience mm -hmm. so i don't know yeah that's that, these these are my thoughts and i'm I'm curious like devin you're clearly a cloud bull like how, how do you see this evolve where's cloud gaming in, in 20 years is that the way we're going to be like most of people will experience games or, or like or everyone will experience these huge huge games i i think they're to, to a certain extent right and i think the, the problem is like you guys are kind of thinking on the PC side and it's really the console side that they're going to hit hard. And that's that's why Microsoft, part of the reason Microsoft's also waiting. Google doesn't really have a console, right? They had you had to buy a special Chromecast to use it on your TV. Um, like, you know, they eventually were like starting to put cloud stuff in TV, smart TVs. But at the end of the day, like Microsoft has like the console install base to get people into it. So, like, for example, I was out of the country uh, at like an Airbnb and there was an Xbox there. And it's just like, oh, I just popped in my account. And suddenly I could just play whatever game I wanted off the cloud thing. Didn't have to download anything. Didn't have to do much other than put mm. in my password uh, and authorize it. And suddenly I could play whatever game I wanted on there. And that was like really nice. Obviously, mm. like account management can be kind of weird with that sort of thing on other people's Xboxes. But like the idea is uh, games are getting huge for one thing. Like download sizes. Like if you've owned a PlayStation, yeah. you know you spend half your time downloading updates. Uh, and and not playing the game, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's it's frustrating. Even Steam can be like that sometimes. But a lot of times you leave Steam on, kind of auto updating and stuff like that, and so you kind of ignore it to some extent. But I've definitely noticed it, like with my Steam Deck, because I I have to kind of turn it on every once in a while and make it mm -hmm. like do updates. And so like as games continue to grow and get bigger and bigger, and that becomes more of a problem, and people are like struggling to keep up. Part of the reason consoles are so popular is because people don't want to keep up with the PC rat race, right? They just want to get a console and they just want to play stuff. And I think if people aren't having to go get this like $500 console because it has the newest tech and it's more just like, hey, I could just get the latest cloud console and I can just play whatever uh, at the high quality settings. Like, that's pretty compelling. Like, I mean, when you played Cyberpunk on, on Stadia, it was, like, on high-quality settings that required a pretty high-end PC to be able mm -hmm. to do. And obviously, the PC purists are not going to be phased or care. But for people that just wanted to play on a laptop or on their phone or on their TV, like, it can be a game-changer because those are situations where that's not so accessible. So I think if you take the opposite approach and stop thinking about the PC side 
especially I know Nico, you're European and like PC is uh, beats console a lot of times out there. Whereas over here in America, especially on the West Coast, like console dominates. And so like especially in America, I think uh, obviously our infrastructure is kind of hit and miss across the states, but mm. it it has a lot of potential. But it is cyclical, right? We had like mm. on live and other stuff in the past um, that kind of comes and goes. And the technology is getting there, but it's it's probably not there where everyone's going to switch over to that yet. And I think yeah. maybe 10 years from now, like that's the dominant console system, but maybe not like the only game system. But I think when it comes to like um, playing on your phone, super high quality, nice games, uh, mm-hmm. if you've tried that, like with the with Stadia or even the Xbox one or whatever, it is really nice to see these really super crisp, high def graphics of like full on AAA games on your phone without your phone like turning into like a, a you know a nuclear power plant in your hand like heating up. Yeah. It, it's nice. Uh, it's all. It's also an interesting use case for a lot of developing markets too. Um, I mean, like on the mobile side, even though mobile adoption is catching up, mobile hardware is improving in a lot of these developing countries. To Devin's point, a lot of the heavier games like. If you you have a 10 gigabyte download, like not every piece of hardware is going to support that. And even though in a lot of those developing markets, network infrastructure is going to have to catch up and improve to make this a seamless experience. It is a more cost effective way for a lot of these IPs to be distributed in parts of the world that they're not even coming close to penetrating today. It was even useful for for playtesting. Like a lot of game companies were really finding it useful for uh, doing the playtesting, especially during COVID. Uh, when it was really hard to, uh, you know, you weren't all in the same place, all that infrastructure for getting quick play tests and, and updates of builds. Like the ability to do that over the cloud was actually, a lot of developers were finding that really useful um, because, you know, they could just do that all remotely and not have to ship builds out to like individual computers and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, there's there's definitely use cases. Like Google got to the point where uh, you could literally like Google for a game. And then for certain people in the Google search results, there was just a play button. And you could just play the game from your Google search results. Like hmm. there, there was like use cases they were trying to get to that they just didn't completely get to that I think kind of spoke to the future possibilities. The idea that you could be watching an ad and then just straight up start playing that game. Similar to the way they try and do like that sort of thing with like mobile ads where like you can kind of try a little like tiny slice of the gameplay. Mm-hmm. And I think with cloud gaming, there's no reason you can't literally just jump straight into a AAA game that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is you're totally right, Devin. That you know, because of my personal and I guess like most Western investors, perhaps bias or what we're exposed to, it's hard. For, like for me, it's still hard to see mobile as like as big as it is, right? Because I don't know anyone. Who, like I don't play mobile games. I only play mobile games when I'm on a plane. Essentially, that's it. I'll play some Archero and I get frustrated because it still requires internet half of the time. And so you know, after a while, I can't play next level just because it, it it's waiting for a connection. Right. Um, so that's 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 that you're like definitely a good point. Um, and I also like need to realize that the, the game that I'm playing right now, for example, it's uh, Civilization Six. Mm. It like that that game would would work perfectly with um, with any type of you know streaming service. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, you know we tend to think in like AAA, like Call of Duty, uh, uh, like game like scenarios, but most of the games are freaking like bubble witch saga and all of these things so candy crush <laughs> yeah. you know Absolutely. super hd 4k candy crush that's uh future of gaming and there, and there is like right a there. platforms trying to do cloud hosted like uh mobile game emulation so that you can play uh like android games in the cloud and like emulators on your on your computer and stuff and it's only a matter of time before we get to like being able to actually play 
on your phone those those mobile games remotely because like there was a there was that push example from from Google and even Facebook where they were trying to do like instant play stuff or the ability to start playing games like really quickly because mm. they had the the whole thing like the the uh, for Google Play where it would like download just enough of the game to start playing it and then download the rest on the fly. And so obviously there's like a technological push to try and get there. And it's like, it doesn't, it seems dumb to us now because it hasn't gotten to the point where it's super convenient and just works. And it's like, you get glimpses of that with Stadia and sometimes even with the Xbox one. And it's like, well, yeah, you have to kind of admit, of course it's not there yet, but it's more like, let's, let's look 10 years into the future when it's so seamless. You're just like, oh yeah, I remember when that was like a question. I remember when we were like, why would people do that? It's like, well, obviously, like the mobile gaming is a perfect example. I remember people be like, no one's going to be playing games on their phone. And you saw stuff like the N-Gage just completely fail. And you're just like, yeah, this is a stupid idea. And now it's like, it is really the biggest platform. Like it outnumbers mm-hmm. consoles, everything. Like even like you look at esports, people be like, no one's going to play esports on their phone. And it's actually like the biggest esports industry. It's like mobile. So it's, we are a little, you know, narrow focused on yeah. the areas that we tend to do. And, uh, and it's harder to see the broader picture, especially globally, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. outside of your own continent. Yeah. Dude, it feels like um, all of these topics are, are way too, too interesting to have a short discussion about. So I guess distribution, in-app purchases, is going to be for next week um, because we've reached our, our limits and uh, we want to keep these, I was going to say short, but it's not short, medium length for you, you know? Good. All right. Um, so one thing I'm excited about to end this off with that the League of Legends World Championships have started. Yeah. They started in in they're in the US, which is annoying because like I'm not gonna it's say not annoying, it, like, Nico. What? That's really it's annoying because time. dude, I'm 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 in bed by 10 p.m. So I never get to see any matches live, right? They they play it throughout my night. But then again, like in the morning, it. I can just skip all of the the, the pickums and stuff and just get into the game. They go from 2 p.m. my time to, to 10 p.m. It's, it's, it's amazing. I'm used to having to wake up at 4 in the morning and turning it on. Uh, and runs through the middle of the work day and I never get to watch any. So I know okay, we, so, we have three esports nerds here. So yeah, yeah, it's great. It's dangerous. So, if, if, so the only re- way... Okay, so I'll tell, I'll tell this publicly now. If my team, which is G2, makes it to the finals, then I'll wake up. Only then. Semis, not going not gonna to happen. I'll watch it the next day. Finals, I'll do it. You have to sit down and do watch, a watch with party. Carlos from G two. So, yeah, so that's that's another discussion. Maybe we can touch upon that next week. I know there's <laughs> a lot of drama there, uh, like a lot of drama. Um, anyway, good. That was it, Phil, Devin. This was uh, this was fun. Thanks for joining, listener. Thank you for listening. If you made it till here, uh, we really appreciate it. If you're not yet in our Discord, come join us. Futureofgaming.wtf. If you like this, you know, let us know. If you don't like this, let us know. Um, if you think we're 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 stupid and we said stupid things definitely let us know because that's sure to how we click learn. the like button and subscribe ring that bell give us ring five stars on spotify and all so you that can get updated every time we upload a new episode there's also going to be new segments coming so um there's some people in in, in our in in fogdow some members that um we're going to be doing founder discussions like what's the first year building a web3 game like mm-hmm. learnings challenges so um should be fun good that's it, it was fun Let's uh, speak to you in, uh, in the next episode. Ciao.